0: Hey there, what are you doing?
1: Just looking at birds.
0: Welcome. I'm your host, Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. Today, my guest is Amanda Timmerman. She began volunteering in 2007 at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. A few years later, she obtained her wildlife science degree and then spent the next 10 years in the Raptor Free Flight Program here at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. It's good to have you on today. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, just to clarify for our listeners, we might hear a couple bird calls in the back like that one. What are we hearing?
1: Uh that is the territorial call of a gray hawk, so that is her seeing us and telling us to get off her front lawn basically,
0: okay. When did you first take an interest in birds?
1: Um I got interested in birds pretty much as a small child. There was a curve build thrasher nest uh that blew down in my backyard and I raised the babies in my bedroom, much to my parents' dismay, and then released them outside in the wild when they were grown up. And I like to think they did okay, and the house cats nearby had nothing to do with any of this. (laughs) But that was my first up-close interaction with birds.
0: Wow. How did you know how to take care of them, I guess?
1: I actually borrowed a book from the library. I didn't at first. I just caught bugs in the house and fed it to them, and that worked. It was definitely not very scientific. um, (laughs) And then ended up checking out a book about about wildlife that looking back on now was probably only about half half right. But, you know, you're 10 and trying to figure things out. Sure.
0: (laughs) Uh, Thinking back further, what's your earliest memory of a bird?
1: That's kind of tough. Honestly, I remember my first real connection with bird and this is low key morbid but finding an electrocuted harris hawk and Mm. just i was always really into dinosaurs Mm -hmm. and kind of making that dinosaur bird connection and Mm. just being impressed with the feet and the face and it was a very interesting thing to a very visceral thing to have in your hand and very both familiar i mean you see them all the time but very very different than us and kind of uh intriguing in that
0: (laughs) just made a connection there
1: yeah absolutely
0: so speaking about your current role as collection specialist here in the Raptor Free Flight Program, what exactly does a collection specialist do?
1: Uh, my job specifically is I'm in charge of the birds and their training. Collection specialist, It's just a fancy word here specifically for lead trainer. So I'm in charge of what we fly, how we fly it, and basically the overall sort of plan for how we set up a training behavior. And then pass off a lot of that for my coworkers as well.
0: Okay. We talked a little bit about your background, spending 10 years in the program, your wildlife sciences degree. What helped you get into this role?
1: Um, Honestly, volunteering was a part of it that I was already kind of familiar with the program Here specifically, a lot of it's done, a lot of the people training is done Mm in-house. It's a fairly unique program in some ways. And so starting here with a huge well of personal interest um, and kind of a fire to learn everything from the people who were already here was the largest portion of figuring stuff out, I think. School is really good for how many eggs does it lay and where do you find it out in the field. And then the actual hands-on portion really happened here at the museum.
0: During those 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yes, yep. If somebody wants to work with raptors as a mm-hmm. job, what kind of experience education do they need?
1: Um, To be honest, a psychology degree is way more useful (laughs) than, uh, like, the the wildlife sciences zoology. It's a very solid background. And because most of our job is applied psychology, that everything has to be on the birds' terms. And basically, uh, it's a game that they feel like playing and know the rules to and enjoy playing. Because if they didn't feel like playing, our demo would be we release the birds and they fly away. (laughs) And that would just be that. Feel and so to getting into the field, psychology is very helpful for a degree. Um, and then any kind of hands-on experience, volunteering, even falconry, wildlife rehab, uh, anything that kind of shows the interest because there's some things you can read about, but until you try it, it doesn't really, it doesn't really have that effect.
0: Hmm. What encouraged you to get into your volunteering role here?
1: I came out to the museum and saw a demo and was just like, okay, how do I do that? <laughs> that, was, that was basically it. <laughs>
0: how neat. What does a typical workday look like for you?
1: Uh, typical workday is actually a lot of husbandry. It's a lot of bird care back behind the scenes. Uh, we like to joke we're mostly bird janitors. About <laughs> 5% of our job is the show, is this, the neat part. A lot of it is cleaning and chopping up food animals, so we do get all of our food uh, in fresh frozen. Uh, there are mouse farms and quail farms out there in the world, and that's where we get our diets from, just like you can order an Angus burger online. Uh, we can order any kind of small mammal or bird. So it's chopping that all up. Each bird is an individual. We have 25 uh, in our program hmm. across 11 different species, and they all have favorite foods, things they like, things they don't like. We're partially uh, janitors and partially I guess culinary Uh <laughs> In a, in a very vague way, uh, culinary specialists for these guys.
0: When you talk about those pieces, the mice, the mm-hmm. quail, do certain raptors have certain preferences for different parts of these two yes
1: uh we do get to know those things we have one harris hawk that doesn't like eating feet which Mm. i understand so he'll you know (laughs) he'll pull the quail feet off of something and we just find toes everywhere one barn owl will leave guts every time the other one eats the whole thing and doesn't Mm. doesn't mind that at all so
0: do you specialize working with a certain bird or do you work with many
1: the way the program is run, we kind of have to be able to work with all of them. We have found that certain birds, I don't want to say like, because it's not quite affection the way a dog or a cat would have affection, but interact with some uh, some staff better. Mm-hmm. Um, the caracara really favors two of our coworkers, and I'm kind of like low on the totem pole for it. Like he tolerates me, but he's kind of like, oh. Okay, you're back. And that just kind of is what it, it is to some degree. And then on the other hand, we all have birds that like us best. So you get that little, <laughs> get a little sad sometimes, but then it's uh, it's fun again when another bird, like uh, when the harrises are up, we can all stand up and there's a Harris that will fly past everybody else to come to you. That kind of feels nice.
0: <laughs> I bet it does. You mentioned having 25 different birds. Mm-hmm. Uh, how have you acquired these birds and how, how do you go about acquiring new ones?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So how we go about acquiring new ones, if we know... Something happens. We had a Harris hawk pass away from old age a couple years ago. We knew we needed a new Harris hawk. There is a lot of captive breeding of Harris's for falconry. Um, Mm -hmm. So in that case, we just went out and found a reputable breeder, um, purchased a Harris hawk, and went that route. Sometimes we get birds. It's less... We know we want to get one and somebody reaches out and says, hey, I have, in this case, it was actually a Chihuahuan raven. So our Mm -hmm. Chihuahuan raven, Dante, was at a wildlife rehab up in Phoenix and his caretakers said, look, we really don't have time for him. We know you also fly some Chihuahuan ravens. Would you like this bird? And we said, sure. (laughs) He's flighted. Um, He was Someone had him as a pet. Um, Hmm. And ravens don't make good pets, I promise. You don't want one in your house. Um, They're a permanent three-year-old with uh, pliers and hammer for a face and kind of an evil sense of humor. Game and Fish, I understand, confiscated Dante. He went to the wildlife rehab up in Phoenix. There was a couple things that happened up there with him, and they said, hey, do you want this bird? And we said, sure.
0: Hmm. For some of your other birds, like the crested caracara, how did you...
1: He was also purchased, actually. So okay. that was one where uh, it was kind of a, a perfect storm of both things. Uh, it's an interesting species. It's one we've been looking to um, to add to the collection if possible. They don't come up in rehab situations often. The department is right now kind of evenly split between captive bred and birds that sort of failed wildlife rehabilitation. So hmm. like the owls, um, both of our owls are from a local wildlife rehabilitator who sometimes if they have a young bird come in that just really focuses on people and either with... Was uh, imprinted accidentally somewhere along the way. Someone pulled it out of a nest and decided they wanted a pet owl. Hmm. Again, you don't want a pet owl. Yeah. Um, or it ended up at the rehab and something happened along the way where it just uh, is a little too focused on people to be safely released. Mm-hmm. Um, they might reach out and say, hey, do you want one kind of thing. Um, there is also a little bit of um, kind of like a, a Craigslist between zoos where people will list like, oh, we needed a Harris hawk. So we bred the Harrises, and now we have seven Harris's and have, you know, we only wanted two and we have seven. They can list them, and we can say, yes, we'd, we'd like one, please, and pick it up. You don't mint in parking lots or anything, but we <laughs> do uh, arrange basically the travel of that. Um, the caracaras from a breeder up in New York. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, there's very little propagation on caracaras. Um, usually you get them as, as wildlife uh, rehabilitation rejects, but um, he was acquired actually as a little, little fuzzy chick.
0: Hmm. When you think of the 25 birds that you have, does any particular one pop out in your mind for the way you brought that bird in? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, so one of our Harris's hawks is a Tucson native. Um, she's 10 years old now, but she was raiding a chicken coop. Uh, mm. Her and her sister were both out there every day picking off the uh, the errant chickens that weren't staying inside. They weren't protected in any way, um, and so they were just walking around. And uh, free food doesn't really happen in nature, so she kind of zeroed in on that. And, of course, the gentleman who owned the chickens was displeased. So he actually put in for the permit to shoot her Hmm. um, and her sister, Game and Fish, very kindly trapped the birds and moved them across the city uh, because this was happening on the west side and tried to get them out of the space Hmm. and the very next day they were back on his porch again (laughs) doing the same thing Um, and so rather than have them be exterminated they trapped them and we brought them here Um, we did end up re-releasing the sister she was didn't habituate to people well. She was kind of anxious, so we just took her a little farther. Um, and she did not go back to this gentleman's farm. And then Scout, we still have here, and she's a very smart bird. Uh, mm. We've used her for multiple filming things. She's really a bird when you work with. It's like a conversation. You can tell she's kind of puzzling out. She's a very active participant in the game, and she's always trying to be a step ahead of you, and it's a lot of fun to, to <laughs> work with.
0: I bet. When you think about running a program like this, what are some of the challenges you face working with raptors?
1: Uh, One of the inherent challenges with any free flight program, and especially out here, is that we are in a national park. So every day, and with flying native wildlife, uh, we release these birds, and almost anything can fly in. Um, Mm -hmm. They can interact with it. They can chase it. A lot of bird shows in North America are flying birds that might not be native to where they're at. So San Diego has sariamas, which, of course, are found in Africa, Mm -hmm. um, and they don't have a wild seriyama come visit them while they're doing their program, out here, we can release the red tail and have three wild red tails show up. And we absolutely have had that happen, especially in springtime. Um, So that's probably our biggest challenge. We don't have any kind of control over. The weather can be a challenge. You know, you release a bird that's maybe not the strongest flyer, just like people. We have some birds that uh, get out there and really like to go. And we have some that really aren't exercise enthusiasts. So if you have one that's kind of a perch potato and the wind picks up. (laughs) <laughs> that can be a little bit a little bit tough.
0: When you talk about other native birds interfering, what do you usually do when that happens?
1: There's not a whole lot we can do. To be honest, it depends on the bird uh, that's out when that happens. Hmm. Um, so, to give the example of our, our red tail, uh, she's a monster. She's hmm. big. Uh, females are 30% larger than the males. Uh, she can absolutely take care of herself. So, if she goes up and starts fighting with another red tail. we kind of wish the other redtail luck, and we wait for her to wrap up and come home. <laughs> if it's something like the Chihuahuan ravens go off, uh, we have to get, or the Caracara, uh, we have to get over there ASAP because they did kind of grow up around people. They don't mm. have the best survival skills. They might tangle with something they shouldn't. And they're, they're smaller birds. Yeah. They are a little bit more of a risk out in the space.
0: So is it just a matter of kind of redirecting their attention? Yes,
1: 100%. Mm. And being like, hey, come back over here. Or sometimes um, if they're going and we've had birds chase wild birds, we've had wild birds chase our birds, uh, you run through the desert <laughs> as okay. fast as you can. <laughs> That's definitely a level of stress, too, if that happens. Mm.
0: You briefly mentioned other raptor programs in the country. Mm-hmm. What is one of the difference between other free flight programs?
1: Um, well, one one thing I did, Disha, kind of touch on was just that we are flying native birds in their environment. So that's mm-hmm. that's one that's um, specific to us. Uh, another is that we're one of the only programs in the world, actually, that showcases soaring. Mm-hmm. Um, so a few of our birds are trained to start on ground level and go up high and then come back down. The Harrises do that. Uh, there's some other programs that do soaring but releasing from a hot air balloon or the top of a football stadium, mm. which is awesome. I and mean, it's still a very dramatic flight, but it's a little sure. bit different as far as, um, as training that behavior goes. Mm. Our red tail has been up over 4,000 feet, um, wow. and come zooming back in before. And so you lose her in binoculars at that point. And we had a little GPS on her that time. That's how we know how high she was. And then mm. she comes zooming back down in over the audience. And that's a very dramatic flight when we get that. <laughs>
0: So one of the key differences is that some of these birds will start at lower and then move to a higher elevation while other programs might start at a higher elevation and go lower?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I guess one question I would have not knowing much about this Mm -hmm. is, why doesn't everyone do this?
1: That's a great question. I think some of it is timing. Uh, It does take a lot of time and focus. We're kind of lucky geographically to be in an open environment like this. We're Hmm. set up to, with the hills around us, create rising air currents mm-hmm. um, it does take a little bit of finesse to teach soaring reliably um, because from the bird perspective it's kind of like running upstairs um, so it takes effort, it takes oomph and you have to treat it really carefully at least at first. Some birds like red tails have that kind of already built in Yeah, uh, that they're soaring birds, they have that inclination so you're kind of just building on that inclination and then paying it really well when it goes the way you, you'd like it to mm-hmm. and then always setting it up so the answer you want is the easy answer for the bird to Give you and then pay that really well is how you you kind of build that. To be honest, I'm not sure why more shows don't, but I suspect some of it's time and and geography just Mm. as far as building that because it does take about six months to get like a Harris Hawk good at soaring. Okay.
0: You talk about feeding, rewarding. So we talked earlier about the psychology behind it. So it's a lot of reward where we were looking for this desired behavior when it's done, provide a reward. So then you might, I might wonder, uh, are these birds just being overfed?
1: Uh, no, that's a, that's a great question. So it all kind of ties back into birds are built to behave. Uh, that natural inherent desire to do something is kind of in there. Um, mm. Rabbits in the wild don't run up and fall over and present themselves to be <laughs> lunch. So you're, you're kind of just channeling that inherent energy. I feel like in a lot of bird shows or in a lot of um, general public knowledge of bird shows, there's this feeling that you have to limit what they're eating to, to have them do what you want, yeah. which is only true in the smallest degree of that you can't feed a bird the equivalent of Thanksgiving dinner and then expect them to come out on a run. Um, So all of our birds are are well-fed. They get their daily birdie equivalent of the 2,000 calories. Basically, it's kind of like the equivalent of if every day for lunch you come down and have a hamburger, and then one day half the hamburger's on this table and half the hamburger's on that table, to go and get the other half of your hamburger... You're performing a behavior, basically. So it's that, but broken into different steps. They can always say no. It's an interesting psychological thing that once you learn, you can say no. And it's for people, too. Mm -hmm. You're more likely to say, yes, it's a salesman's tactic. And so the birds ever don't feel like coming out. One of our Harris's does not like rain. So if Mm -hmm. we open his door and we say, hey, you want to come out and it's raining, he'll hop to the ledge look at the sky and pop right back in again and he still gets breakfast, lunch and dinner he can make that choice for himself if he feels like coming out and once they discover that kind of thing if the audience is too big or too scary they know they can go back home and still have all of their needs met you find them to be a lot more confident in novel situations I touch on our red tail a lot behaviorally because she's one that um, she could absolutely return to the wild tomorrow and be totally fine hmm. um, she has hunted oh my gosh her her she has the highest kill count Hmm. um so far of all of our birds. She got really good at catching snakes a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. um, yeah, so birds of prey usually zero in on one sort of prey species as they hmm. as they specialize. And she selected snakes. And of course we have rattlesnakes out here. Um, so she did pick the only thing that's actually dangerous for her. We thank her very <laughs> much for that. She's caught, killed, eaten, and then uh, her job is to go up and soar and then come back down. So she's caught and killed and eaten an entire gopher snake. Mm. And we're trying to coax her back home with the whole quail or something else because we would like to carry on with our day at that point. Sure. We're like, all right, the show is gone. The people are gone. <laughs> I would like to have lunch. Can we please just go home? And she will go up and go into her soar and go a 1,000 feet up and then come down and go home after that. Like she wants to do her mm. job, her her thing. Yeah. Um, and she's very, very timely. She spent the night out once. She went up in a soar. She ended up fighting with five other red tails. She ended up on Wasson Peak, which is a drive from here. And as a hormonal red tail flies, about 15 minutes. Uh, so 10 a.m. the next morning, I was here at the museum setting up to do demo. Daniel was on Wasson Peak with uh, the red tail. Her name is Sonora, and uh, at 9.50, she popped up and then flew down here and was on site at 10 a.m., which is her usual time to, huh. to fly. So she, like, checked the internal clock goes, oh, I was, like, i got to go punch the clock, and showed up right <laughs> here. time to be there. Yeah, 100%, and it was a very interesting thing for us to see.
0: When she hunts outside of the quail or mice she receives, does she go kill that creature and bring it back, or does she just eat it over there? Sometimes. The first
1: time it happened, it was a rattlesnake, Mm -hmm. which was very exciting because she brought it back to our coworker Wally. (laughs) So he was in the desert, and he saw she had something. Oh, okay. So he went and tried to call her back to his glove, and she popped out of the bush carrying a mostly dead rattlesnake and carried it back to him. And he said it was everything he could do to just okay, <laughs> I guess we're doing this. And so she had mostly incapacitated it and it was fine. But um, yeah, there is there is some instinct to carry it back and take this basically like in a to-go box yeah. to carry that home if possible. We do feel a little bit bad for the snakes because she doesn't usually eat very much of them. She just mm. kills them and messes with them a little bit and then trades it for stuff she likes better uh, if it's a very big snake. The, the little R1s she'll swallow whole. <laughs>
0: I was going to ask because of the size of that meal, yeah. if she would finish it or eat take longer to eat it. But she just takes she really a portion seems of to it. just
1: like fighting with the, the big ones, for lack of a better. I mean, you don't want to anthropomorphize too much, but just watching her behavior, she actually has been nearly killed by snakes twice now. The first one was a very large gopher that she probably we didn't see it, but probably struck mid body. It wrapped around her. Um, uh-huh. She was unconscious when we got back there. Well. And Daniel unwrapped her really quickly and put the the snake in his bag and she came back to consciousness and then was just running around and looking in the bushes and like, all right, where did it go?
0: Yeah. And
1: then the next day she grabbed a rattlesnake wrong and the snake bit her back. Hmm. Um, and so that was she was the first uh, red tail in North America to be successfully treated with anti venin um, hmm. and survive that attack. But
0: I was going to ask, do you keep some on hand now? Just in case?
1: Yes, absolutely. We do. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: huh? Because, uh, yeah, that's that's been a thing she's done a couple of times now. Eat, uh, killed and eaten rattlesnake. She's only yeah. been bitten back the once. But, this one time. Nice.
0: Yeah. When people think about a program like this, what are some things that are essential to running this program that they may not think of?
1: At the birds have to be the boss. Um, this has to be on their terms. We've found through a couple of years of doing this that the more control you Give your coworkers, your birds, the happier all of your collection is, the less you see superstitious behavior. And superstitious behavior is kind of like, if you see um, kind of a textbook case, it would be like a lion pacing in an enclosure. Mm. They don't know quite when lunch is arriving, but they know it's coming. And to them, pacing has something to do with lunch arriving. Mm. And so for a lot of our birds, it's giving them very clear You fly at this time and then you're off and you might see us here and you might see us um, at a different time and giving them very firm time frames for what to expect from people.
0: So So maintaining a consistent schedule is important. Yes,
1: consistency is is huge.
0: Okay, now let's move on to our bird segment where my guest will share a bit about the black-throated magpie jay. When I first saw this bird, its unique appearance caught my attention, specifically its massive tail that appears to be twice as long as its body. Would it be safe to say that its tail offers some benefit during flight?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They use their tails as a counterbalance. So uh, they actually have some of the longest tails in the Corvid family. There's only two other corvids that that have that phenomenal long tail and that's why um, people originally assumed they were magpies instead of jays Hmm. and that does operate as a counterbalance for them so when they're in the tops of trees it lets them basically balance um, on some really precarious perches and stay up there well
0: Hmm. the jay also has some interesting feathering on its head aside from increasing its beauty is there any other benefit
1: We believe it's partially like birdie eyebrows, Hmm. Uh, for lack of a better phrase. It does kind of, they're very social. They Mm -hmm. live in pairs or in small groups, uh, and there's a lot of interaction. Uh, When you look at a bird's face, they don't really have a lot of uh, of physical characteristics. They can move. And crests, like an owl's ears, seem to help them uh, a little bit with some of that communication as Hmm. far as visual communication, whatever else they would be showing.
0: Okay. Where would you find these uh, magpie jays in the wild?
1: Their native range is down in southwestern Mexico. Uh, they're kind of in the little um, mesquite forests. They're not found in the really heavy, uh, humid rainforests, but pretty much anywhere there's large trees. And they also enjoy some of the open grasslands near like the mesquite bosques. They are also now in Tijuana and parts of San Diego as released pets. They've had uh-huh. uh, in, endemic populations there now. Hmm.
0: When they live in these areas, what do they usually go after for food?
1: Well, it's funny because they don't they look like really beautiful songbirds and in many ways they are. They are predatory. Mm-hmm. Um they'll eat the fruits and seeds as well as um small insects. They will also raid nests, get nestlings, eggs. Mm-hmm. I found one source that said they'll eat hummingbirds out in the oh, wild. Wow. Um yeah, they're actually pretty fearsome little predators. Uh, One of the birds we have here actually has made a real hobby of eating the little house mice we have. Mm -hmm. So the way the enclosures are built, it's difficult for the raptors to grab the house mice off the rafters. The jay is having little stabby beaks. He can just grab hold of the mouse and pull it through the wire that way. And he's at like eight (laughs) or nine of them. He's not even that hungry. He just kills them and carries them around. It's
0: kind of gruesome. With the word magpie in its name, my guess is that this bird is quite intelligent. How have you seen this intelligence demonstrated?
1: how we've actually we've had some fun with giving them food puzzles there is all sorts of and For good reason, Uh, there's a lot of intelligence tests for parrots and for dogs where it's a a food puzzle on a plate where it's got little drawers and levers, and we've used those for these guys. They're Hmm. problem-solving, especially watching the other birds solve it and then applying those skills. Hmm. Uh, They do also occasionally lock us out. There is a latch on the inside that they'll play (laughs) with. They can open and close that pretty well. I don't think they're necessarily intending to lock us out so much as just playing with something, but it is kind of a funny side effect. Hmm. They'll also steal things from the main space, which is interesting. Our entire main area is closed off, so we can release them to to basically play around in there. And they've stolen the dry erase markers, the dry dry eraser itself, um, all sorts of office supplies. They like unscrewing things, so anything that's not firmly attached is liable to go home with them. (laughs) Um, They're just very, very curious in general.
0: Did they when they take these things? Did they place them all in one place, like in a collection? Or
1: I wish they were that organized. No, usually um, it's funny because you read about that with um, some of the true magpies making collections. I don't know if it's because these guys are in a captive situation where they have access to so many novel things, mm-hmm. they don't feel the need to kind of cache it and save it the way they would in the wild. Yeah. They don't seem to cache items. They will cache food sometimes. Which means you'll be cleaning their enclosure and then find a quail head or something sticky and gross from a day before. And that seems to be like a little special treat that they'll hang on to. I have no idea what that songbird is, but it's whatever's making the tweet noise right there that you referenced earlier.
0: (laughs) Oh, I do see it. That looks like a Lincoln sparrow. You can see it's it's coming in so close. Awesome. Yeah, I can't believe it's come so close. It's probably six (laughs) feet away. (laughs) Very cool, I think you have uh, is it three magpie Jason? Yes three. with your experiences with them, what's a particularly memorable experience you've had either with training them or just keeping them?
1: Ooh. Honestly, working them through novel things and just seeing how different personalities... Is that another Lincoln Sparrow? It's
0: another one. Okay. <laughs> Very oh, there's cool. There's a couple of them, yes.
1: Oh, awesome. No, watching them work through things with different personality approaches. So giving them, say, a Kleenex box with some paper towels and some basically treats inside. And we have one that will just brute force everything. And so mm-hmm. his reaction... That's Bob. Bob's... <laughs> Bob's... Uh, problem solving is basically hit it until you figure out how to get through it Um, and some of the others Petrie will sit down and kind of like hop around it and look at all the angles and then pick a little bit out and try this and roll over and really explores it more than for example Bob does Hmm. Um, and watching them work through things differently is very entertaining for the staff working with them in novel environments so like doing visitor interactions Uh, we had a gentleman in a really neat mobility scooter that could raise up to basically standing height Mm. and watching the jays puzzle out just like hop down and check out all the little hydraulics (laughs) and everything else and they didn't do anything on toward but they were very just whoa like what is this this? yeah Yeah. and that was a lot of fun to to watch them investigate (laughs)
0: So I know these black-throated magpie jays are a part of the Avian Adventures program. If people wanted to come and see them, I know with the raptor-free flight program, they're watching these raptors, as you mentioned earlier, soar. What could they expect to see with the black-throated magpie jays?
1: The jays aren't a part of our daily demos um, because they are a little bit of a predation risk being outside in the space. Um, And they're also not native to right around here. (laughs) um, So we can't showcase them the same way as uh, the rest of our birds. But because they're not native to around here, for avian adventures, what we do is we have uh, visitors interact with them. So they get to call them to their hand, do pictures with them up close, Hmm. and kind of interact with them on the bird's terms. But uh, really see what these guys are all about and then hear all the fun Jay stories that that happen (laughs) along the way.
0: Nice. I'd like to thank Amanda for joining us today, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow or subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, I would appreciate it if you left a rating and a review to help more people discover the podcast. For pictures of the black-throated magpie jay please check out the podcast's Instagram and follow Looking at Birds podcast. Until next time, keep looking at birds.